0: My friends, you know me to be neither rash nor impulsive. I'm not given to wild unsupported statements. As we enter the sixth episode of the Silver Screen Superman podcast, discussing 1978's Superman the Movie, we must acknowledge this film is one of the greatest superhero movies in history. With each podcast, I try to cover three main topics for the work at hand. First, the behind-the-scenes situation about the making of the film. Second, the impact the film had on the legacy of Superman, both in terms of creating changes in the comics and in terms of altering the public awareness of the character. And third, the quality of the film itself. This movie provides more fodder for all of these topics than any of the others in this series. As a result, the podcast is being broken into two parts. The first two points will be covered here in Part 1, surrounding the making of the film and its impact on Superman. The second part of the podcast will deal with the quality of the film itself, as well as some overlap with the first two points. In doing my research for this podcast, I realize that I have something to say about every scene in this movie, so that's what I'm going to discuss. The second part of this podcast will be a fan commentary track on the 151-minute extended edition of this film, released on home video in the year 2000. It is now available both individually and in the deluxe 14-disc DVD and 8-disc Blu-ray collections of Superman films. It originally took Superman three years to hit the big screen after his comic debut. In the character's first 13 years, there were 17 cartoons, followed by two 15-chapter serials in the George Reeves film, not to mention the radio show. After that, it took another 27 years for the character to hit the big screen, although he was still appearing on the small screen. The Adventures of Superman starring George Reeves lasted six seasons, but Collier returned to the role for a 1966 animated series, and we had various incarnations of the Super Friends. A lot of these incarnations were animated, and there was a shift in tone. In the early 1950s, Frederick Wortham released Seduction of the Innocent, Every 20 years or so, people decide that the current generation of kids have more problems than the previous generations, and they look at everything but actual parenting skills to explain the perceived trend. In the 1930s, gangster films got the blame, leading to the creation of the MPAA and the movie rating systems. In the 1970s, it was Dungeons & Dragons, and in the 1990s, it was video games, leading to the formation of the ESRB. In the 1950s, comic books were the great boogeyman that was blamed for the evils of the use of the day, with particular emphasis on horror and superhero comics. Just as the film industry created the MPAA earlier and the gaming industry created the ESRB later, the comic book industry created the Comics Code Authority. Unfortunately, while the other systems created a graduated system where a product was simply stamped with a reasonable consumer age, the Comics Code Authority went with a simple system where titles were either approved or not. To be approved, very strict rules had to be adhered to in terms of content and violence. Many comics were brought to a kid-friendly format, including Superman. It's not that Superman was very inappropriate for children, but more that his villains and adversaries had to be toned down. One move that was made was soliciting cover ideas from younger readers, which led to some goofy ideas and uncharacteristic moments in the comics. You could find websites collecting these covers all over the place today, but if you read the issues, you'll find that the cover doesn't quite represent the contents, or practical jokes are involved, or one character is teaching another a lesson, and so forth. This was the era that launched the television Batman series starting Adam West, and the movie that went along with it that we'll be discussing next March. When the Wortham fever passed, the comics could grow up again, and they tried to make major changes to Superman to recapture a partially lost audience. They reduced his power levels, eliminated all known samples of kryptonite, and had the Daily Planet bought out by a multimedia group that transferred Clark Kent from his job as a newspaper reporter to a television reporter. The supporting cast grew, and we saw major status quo changes in the comics for the first time in years. During this period, the Selkyns were producing movies out of Europe, Alexander Selkine was the financial backer while his son Ilya and Ilya's childhood friend Pierre Spangler produced the films on an active basis. They worked with director Richard Lester on The Three Musketeers and The Four Musketeers which were actually filmed simultaneously. They were both great financial successes and they were looking for the next project. It was Ilya's idea to buy the rights to Superman. At the time, Superman's parent company was DC Comics a brand owned by National Periodical Publications which was in turn owned by Warner Brothers. This is why all DC Comics properties since the Adam West Batman film have been released through Warner Brothers. Warner agreed to distribute domestically, but that was the only initial commitment they'd make. They honestly thought the project was unfilmable. The Salkinds knew that the best way to handle the title was to go big. It had to be epic, and it had to be serious. They also knew it was going to be incredibly expensive, so their money would have to be spent carefully, or it could go completely out of control. The first major coup was to get Mario Puzo signed on as writer. Puzo was in the spotlight for the Godfather series. With him attached, they could also afford to cast Marlon Brando as Jarell, which added tremendous respect to the project. With Brando attached, they can get Gene Hackman, coming off his own Oscar wins. With those name attached, they could expect a certain amount of box office revenue, so the investments were a bit safer. The kinds also prefer a hands-on approach to production, so they needed a director to match. They needed someone with talent, but who was still early enough in his or her career that he or she wouldn't be expensive and could follow orders. Their first choice was Guy Hamilton, director of several James Bond films, but that fell through for legal reasons. As I said, the Salkinds worked in Europe, they wanted to film in Italy, but that plan was changed when Marlon Brando signed on, since he was wanted for pornography after making Last Tango in Paris. That moved the production to Britain, but Guy Hamilton was in tax exile and could only stay in the UK for a maximum of 30 days of the year, which is unfeasible for a director of a pair of movies on this scale. The Salkinds tended to film a movie and its sequel simultaneously to control costs, as they did with the Musketeers, and that was their plan here too. Brando was a much bigger name from the perspective of the audience, so Brando stayed and Hamilton left. They signed on Richard Donner, who had directed The Omen, and struck gold. Donner brought in Tom Mankovich to rewrite the scripts in hand, and the movie went into production. Casting Superman was another huge step. The financial backers wanted to name a big star, but Donner fought for an unknown. He was concerned that nobody would believe it if the big-name star was flying, because you'd be seeing the star instead of Superman. He was eventually able to win that fight, and Christopher Reeve was cast. Chris Reeve had to read for the part several times. Everyone liked the way he played the part and the way he carried himself, but he was rather skinny, and they didn't want to use a padded suit as had been done with George Reeves and Kirk Allen in the past, since it doesn't quite look right. When he was cast, Chris Reeve went to David Prouse for physical training. Prouse is probably best known as the man in the Darth Vader suit in the original Star Wars trilogy. But he also physically trains a lot of Hollywood stars for roles like this. By the end of the film, no padding was needed for the suit, although early scenes had to be reshot because the padded suits they started with looked inconsistent. Chris Reeve also took it upon himself to visit DC Comics and talk to Superman's writers, looking for expertise on the character. He was a method actor who did everything he could to stay in character. Reeve graduated in Group 4 at Juilliard in 1975, two years ahead of Kevin Conroy, who would later voice Batman in the 1990s animated series and on the Justice League cartoons. We'll be talking about some of his work next year. Reeve took his craft extremely seriously and wanted to go straight to the horse's mouth to get the information he needed to play his character in a manner that was consistent with the source material. The biggest production hurdle was in making Superman fly. He had flown as a cartoon with Kirk Allen, and George Reeves had flown by hanging off wires with a fixed camera and moving background uh, with a fan in his face to simulate the wind. Neither method had been convincing, in really any way. The movie eventually adapted blue screen technology to the job. Blue screen effects are made by having the actor stand in front of a blue screen. In post-production, the blue layers are removed from the film emulsion, and the actor is superimposed over another background. They had some trouble with this, since Superman's suit is blue and would sometimes disappear along with the background, but they eventually found ways to make it work using other colors and more advanced filtering. Uh, This is also why sometimes the Superman suit changes color from scene to scene. They actually had different suits in different colors to go along with different backgrounds. The second hurdle was making it look like the character was moving and not just hanging in front of a background. They pulled this off by mounting the camera on gimbals in a moving platform, complete with zoom lenses. For most flying scenes, Reeve was posing while hanging in a stationary position, and the camera would sweep and move around him to produce the necessary shots. For better or worse, things weren't going quite as the Salkinds had planned. The first movie overran its budget, easily becoming the most expensive movie ever made at that time, with a total production budget of $55 million. They also found that Richard Donner wasn't willing to roll over and take orders despite his relatively short career at that point, so by the time the first film was released, Donner and the Salkinds weren't speaking to each other. The Salkinds needed a mediator. They had been holding out on paying Richard Lester the last of the money they owed him for directing the Musketeer movies, and cut a deal with him. If he'd come mediate between Donner and the Salkinds, they'd finish paying him for the last job he did for them. Lester agreed, so he ended up on set and involved in the project, while production was still wrapping on the original and starting on the sequel. The movie was originally released in a limited release on December 15th, 1978, and a wide release on Christmas Day. The audience responded immediately and unambiguously. The cultural icon had been treated with respect, so his fans felt respected. The filmmakers clearly understood the elements that had led to the character's lasting appeal, and they put those elements right up on screen. The movie claimed the record for the largest opening weekend for a December release, although it would only keep that record for a year, and would become the sixth highest-grossing film of all time. The domestic gross was $134,218,018, with an estimated overseas gross of $166 million for a total of around $300 million. The gross isn't an indication of profitability directly, though, since distributors, exhibitors, and often stars and directors get percentages of box office dollars these days. As a rule of thumb, a film is not considered profitable until the gross revenue is triple the production budget. So the financial backers only double their investments instead of sextupling them. Still an excellent return and an undeniable success, but not what you might assume at first when looking at the numbers. The huge success of the film led to some issues. Marlon Brando ended up successfully suing the Salkinds since they under-reported the overseas grosses and shortchanged his paycheck. Richard Donner was also noticed by the industry and audiences for his directing talents, which usually results in increased pay and increased creative control over future projects. His next project was already in progress, though. The Salkinds had hired him to direct two Superman films and started filming the sequel before the first was complete. The implications of this will be covered in detail next month when we take a much closer look at the sequel. This wraps up Part 1 of our coverage for Superman the Movie. Part 2 is available now and is a commentary track to go along with the extended edition release of the film that hit DVD in 2000. As listeners of this podcast are probably very well aware, this is being released on the same day as Man of Steel, which will get its own podcast in December, so that I'll have the opportunity to go through the bonus features, commentary tracks, and so forth for the podcast research. Meanwhile, cue up your DVDs and Blu-rays to enjoy Part 2 of the podcast, which includes synchronization instructions in the first few minutes, and then join us next month for our discussion of Superman two. If you'd like to give feedback on the podcast, you can do so through email sent to bureau42podcasts at gmail.com, through the articles on Bureau 42 itself, or through reviews in iTunes. Thank you.